Good morning, church. Today's passage is from Judges 4. Again, as the Israelite did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lepidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Sebulon, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you do not go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course of your taking, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Gedesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left over the other Kenites, the descendants of Hoab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree Zenanaim near Kedesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned the Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River, all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with his 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera had from his chariot fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and his army as far as the Harasheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Standing in the doorway of the tent, he told her, If someone come by, comes by and asks you, if anyone is in there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him when he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then, Barak came by the, in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said. I will show you the man you are looking for. So he went in with her. There lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of the Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. This is the word of the Lord. It is the word of the Lord indeed. Thank you. Please keep it open in front of you. 
And in addition, you'll find in your order of service today an outline I've put together in the hope that you might go home and continue your study in this book of Judges. Uh, those opposed to Christ and his gospel are having trouble answering the question, what is a woman? Well, today I'm presenting the first in a series of three studies on three godly women, and my hope is that it will help us in our understanding from God's point of view in looking for the answer to that question. What is a woman? We're looking at the word of Deborah, and we're looking at Judges chapters 4 and 5. The book of Judges is the seventh book in the Bible library of 66 books. God has revealed his will and purpose for all time and for all people. Uh, Judges covers a period of about two centuries from around about 1230 BC down to 1050. That is after Joshua following the exodus from Egypt and before King Saul prior to the settlement in the promised land. The first thing we're confronted with is God's judgment. Except uh, we're not being confronted with it. <laughs> ah. <clears throat> Migration causes uh, challenges for all concerned. Um, that's true of individuals, families, communities. European settlement here in Australia, I'm sorry, I think we might just switch that off. It's putting me right off. Don't bother about it. European settlement here in Australia and the subsequent embracing of peoples from many nations is at the heart of discontent as a people. At first, there was colonialism, where the laws and lifestyle of one foreign power were imposed in a new land. A little over a hundred years later, federalism struggled to bring together many different colonies into one nation. Sadly, that's something we seem to have lost over the last few years. Multiculturalism was an experiment over the last 70 years, aimed at giving each ethnic group a large degree of cultural uh, expression within the political framework that has developed over two centuries. Inevitably, the laws applied under colonial settlement have changed and are challenged even now in the most fundamental way. The Twitter of the mindless and the shallow assessment of the media tend to mask the seriousness of the position we're in. For example, the Christian ideal of marriage not always adhered to, but built into the law, nevertheless, has now been destroyed. On the first day of winter, 
2015, the then leader of the Federal Labor Party moved a private member's bill in the Federal Parliament. He wanted to change the definition of marriage from one man and one woman for a lifetime to simply two persons of any gender or none. By December 2017, the Parliament passed that bill and royal assent signed so-called uh, same-sex marriage into law. Contemporary history in this country reflects the challenges that migration presents in the first 200 years of people anywhere. The clash of ancient cultures and the necessity of dealing with new neighbours is always fraught with problems. As we reflect on the period of the judges in Israel, it's obvious that the tensions were there too. The best known of the judges, of course, are Gideon and Samson. That's probably because at Sunday school and at home, we want our children to follow one and not the other. Yet each judge was raised up by God in his mercy towards a disobedient people. The description of their behaviour after the death of Othniel, which led to the raising up of Ehud, is the same as the one given after Ehud. So you read in verse 1 of chapter 4, after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The trigger for trouble is disloyalty to God and what is good. With the restraint of the godly man removed, people reverted to their natural behaviour, enjoying God's world without thankfulness to God. Judgment was swift. Verse 2, he says, The Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The strength of Jabin's position was twofold. First of all, he had a standing army which contained 900 iron chariots. And secondly, there was the fearsome reputation of his army commander, Sisera. It's said of him in verse 3 that he had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Well, as usual, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They could depend on God, even though they'd been unfaithful to him. So you read in verse 4, God raised up Deborah as a prophetess to lead Israel at that time. Now, we know nothing about Deborah's personal life except the name of her husband, Lapidoth. Among the major judges, Deborah is the only one to make what we would call legal judgments. Uh, when people ask me if they can speak to me privately, in my naughty way, I say, come into my office, and then I point to the nearest chair where we can sit and talk privately. Godly fellowship and spiritual counsel do not need a formal setting. And so you read in verse 5, when Deborah became judge, 
she held court under a palm tree between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. That's where the Israelites went to have their disputes settled. That's where Deborah's judgments were handed down. Passing on the message of the king of heaven does not depend on having a palace or a cathedral. Just think for a moment in the New Testament. Paul was walking the Damascus road when the Lord stopped him dead in his tracks. There he was called to cross the great social divide and minister to the Gentiles. The Apostle John was isolated on the island of Patmos when he received those marvellous visions of the book of Revelation. The place is not important. The focus is on the powerful word of God. At this point in history, in the book of Judges, there was no formal declaration of nationhood. No parliament or courthouse such as exists in a well-set-up society today. Israel was an alliance of 12 tribes held together by their loyalty to the Sinai covenant given to Moses, part of which we read today. Two and a half tribes settled in the Transjordan and the others stretched along the coastal strip between the Jordan River and the sea. This loose affiliation of tribes only acted together when threatened by surrounding nations. On these occasions, they were summoned by the judge appointed by the Lord. Which brings us secondly to God's command. Confronted again, Deborah sent a message to Barak from Naphtali, one of the northern tribes. It was a clear command, not a word from the prophetess, but a word from the Lord. That is its strength. It is self-authenticating. Verse 6, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, your southern neighbour, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. Now that's about 18 kilometres west of the Sea of Galilee at the junction of two ancient trade routes. The Lord shared his strategy with Barak. It's there in verse 7. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the river Kishon and give him into your hands. Now, few generals have gone forward to battle with such a great set of encouragements. A clear command from the Lord God Almighty and a definite promise of success. Barak, nevertheless, looked for some sort of tangible support. It was all right to have a word from the Lord, but perhaps it would be better to have a prophet at the battle. And so Barak challenged Deborah, verse 8, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I will not go. 
Now, before condemning Bayrak's hesitancy, it is good to remember that the enemy's iron chariots were the ancient equivalent of the tiger tanks, which shredded the nations of Europe when Germany made its second attempt to rule the world back in 1940. Nothing seemed to stop them. Deborah did agree to Barak's request, verse 9, certainly I will go with you. Here is a woman full of purpose and full of faith. There was a rebuke, however, in her acceptance of Barak's demand. Notice she says, the honour of defeating Sisera will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now it's always been a wonder to me that the feminist movement have never learnt this passage off by heart. Getting all the sisters to know it and prove once and for all the inferiority and perhaps the dispensability of mankind. Barak was able to gather 10,000 men to fight under his command and Deborah was there with him. But what are 10,000 foot-slogging soldiers compared with 900 tiger tanks of the day? Fast-moving chariots with whirling iron hubs and sword blades welded onto the wheels, scything through the banks of men and cutting them off at the knees. That seems to me a fearsome prospect. Jabin's general Sisera, so full of himself, relished the challenge from the master's enemies. They were what he considered to be a disorganised rabble of refugees recently escaped from Egyptian servitude. Sisera took to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. But Deborah, the prophetess of the Lord, was with Barak. She had the word for that moment in history. We sometimes record the statements of men and women at such times. For example, Prime Minister Winston Churchill's salutary reminder on the 4th of June, 1940, in the House of Commons, after the miracle of Dunkirk, where 338,000 Allied soldiers were rescued from the slaughterhouse across the Channel. He said, then we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and the streets. We shall never surrender. Or again, Churchill's assessment of those pilots in the Battle of Britain later that year, when a new pilot had a life expectancy of only seven weeks. Churchill said then, never in the field of human conflict have so many owed so much to so few. Most recently, of course, people have quoted Queen Elizabeth 
in her encouraging reminder in her own loss that grief is the price we pay for love. Deborah's prophecy to Israel at the Kishon River in the 11th century BC is one of those timeless statements. Look at it in verse 14. Go, Barak, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? On the basis of that prophecy, Barak's army, swords in hand, advanced on the tiger tanks, Sisera's iron chariots. The prophecy was true. The Lord was with Barak, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. History is full of stories of men and women who shake their puny fist at God and boldly attack his people. Every time, God cuts them down to size despite their military advantage. We do well to remember that right now with all the sabre-rattling of China, the horror of the Russian aggression in Ukraine and Rocket Man sending his rockets over Japan. Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. You might like to underline verse 16. Sisera thought he had a safe house in the tents of Heba. There was an alliance between his king and Heba. That's reflected back in verse 11. Heba the Kenite had left the other Kenites and pitched his tent under the great tree at Kadesh. Feeling safe with his allies, Sisera hid with the women in Heba's wife's tent. Her name was Jael. Now there was another woman to be reckoned with. It's one of those come-into-my-web-said-the-spider-to-the-fly moments. That's virtually what she says in verse 18. Come, my lord Sisera, come right in, don't be afraid. How vulnerable the powerful of this world are when stripped of their armour. Jael covered Sisera with a blanket and gave him milk to drink. He only asked for water, but she gave him warm milk straight from the camel. Sisera's feeling of security was short-lived. He told Jael to stand guard at the door of the tent. The story of confidence placed falsely during the great conflicts of the past century still fills our TV screens and bookshops. Jael is a heroine with a difference. According to verse 21, a tent peg and a hammer. As Sisera lay fast asleep in an exhausted state, Jael, his safe house hostess, drove a tent peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Now, thankfully, I don't have an illustration for that. 
This is the stuff, I suppose, to gain the attention of inattentive choir boys at Sunday school. The victorious Bayrak arrived hot in pursuit only to find his enemy had been subdued by a woman, just as the prophecy had foretold. Battles are fought every day. Some are won, some are lost. In the end, what matters is the winning of the war. Stepping back from the gory detail of this revolting scene, the chronicler writes in verse 23, on that day, God subdued the Jabin king of Canaan before the Israelites. That is the significant fact in the purpose he has planned for his people. The details described here are only a glitch on the radar compared, of course, with the salvation of mankind, the bringing in of those whom he has chosen to spend all eternity with him. He will pay a far greater price personally to achieve that aim. God the Father would give his only beloved son, Jesus, to die in the place of sinners and raise him to life again on the third day. For this time in history, here in the book of Judges and verse 24, the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed them. Which brings us thirdly to God's praise and Judges chapter 5. It's called the Song of Deborah. On that day, that is the day when God subdued Israel's enemy, Jabin, Deborah and Barak sang this song. It's not exactly the sort of routine that you might see or hear at Eurovision or down at the town hall next to the cathedral. It's more in the nature of a historical record such as you find in the book of Exodus or among the Psalms of the Old Testament. It's a song in praise of the God of Israel, we're told there in verse 3. He is the true victor in the battle. Wise princes step out in faith. Willing people follow their lead. Kings and rulers take note. Verse 4, when you, Lord, went out from Seir on the border of Edom, where Esau's descendants settled, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. God sent a flood to overcome the enemy. He's done that before, of course, on a greater scale in the days of Noah. But what a chariot driver's nightmare to be bogged in soggy ground, surrounded by sword-wielding tribesmen on the slopes of Mount Tabor. There was no room to move. The victory is the Lord's. Mountains quaked before the God of Israel. Living in fear of a conquering enemy saps the strength of a defeated people. They have little resolve to fight on 
against seemingly impossible odds. That had been the situation among the tribes of Israel until this time. We read in verse 7 of uh, Judges 5, villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until Deborah arose, a mother in Israel. Deborah was no wilting lily. She grieved at Israel's defeatist attitude and disobedience. Where was their sense of pride in God? Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel, verse 8. Yet the Lord always preserves a remnant of those in tune with his purpose. <clears throat> From verse 9, the song goes on, My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord for them. You who ride on white donkeys, sitting on saddle blankets, and you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the victories of the Lord, the victories of his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the city gates. Wake up, Deborah. Arise, Barak. Take captive your captives. So you read in verse 13 that the remnant of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down to me, she says, against the mighty. Others feared and stumbled, but not those following the Lord. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was there with his people following the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, yet Issachar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley, stepping out in faith, trusting in the Lord's word. It's at this point that some of the tribes are singled out for inaction and worse. From verse 15, in the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens when you should have been facing the chariots of evil? Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, nice and safe there. Asher remained over on the coast. They stand condemned. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. Naphtali came in and left the terrace fields. It is encouraging to notice that Zebulun and Naphtali failed earlier in the period of settlement. Now they've come good. Originally, instead of driving out the Canaanites as they were commanded to do, they simply used them as slave labour. That, of course, meant that they risked absorbing ungodly ways into Israel's daily life and enduring culture. Well, here they redeemed themselves, fighting with Barak. And nature did better than Reuben, Gilead and Asher. Verse 20, from the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The flooded river Kishon swept them away. 
The song takes a different tone altogether at the mention of Jael, the woman who dispatched Sisera with the tent peg. She's described in verse 24 as the most blessed of tent-dwelling women. I'd have to say I'm glad I never had an auntie like that. She struck Sisera where he sank, and there he fell dead. So may all your enemies perish, Lord, says the historian in verse 31. But may all those who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength, illuminating and warm. Now, what are we as gospel people, followers of the lovely Jesus, God's Son, to make of all this conflict? Why was it necessary? Well, this is the record of judgment for unfaithfulness among God's people. The condition of their entering again into the land promised to Abraham was that they should drive out the Canaanites. It was not negotiable. It was commanded by God. But sadly, we read in the first chapter of Judges that when Israel became strong, they worked the Canaanites and did not drive them out. God then warned them, I will not drive them out, they will become thorns in your sides. And why was that? To test them and to teach obedience. After the Lord's glorious victory through Deborah and Barak, then the land had peace for 40 years. Brethren, even under the provisions of love and grace in the new covenant of faith we have with the resurrected Jesus, we struggle to be obedient to God's will. In affluent 21st century Australia, comfort has become the ultimate goal. The nightly reports of sorrow and disaster from around the world are soon glossed over with sporting results and financial opportunities. Early retirement and secure living are the stuff that dreams are made of. We look for God in the comfort zone while our ears are deaf to his call through the chaos that our disobedience produces. Israel went forward when they stepped out of their comfort zone and went to face their enemies with only a word from the Lord to lead them. That is faith in action. Robert Browning's words resonate the challenge. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, but not a word, said she. But oh, the things I learned from sorrow when sorrow walked with me. I want to ask you this morning, are you feeling uncomfortable? Are you anxious about your life? The troubles of life, great and small, can be thorns in our sides. 
provoking us back to the place of obedience where we trust only the Lord and his word to lead us. And that is true, even if we have to stand alone in this godless age. Well, these things from the book of Judges are very challenging, so I'm going to ask you now to join me in a moment of quietness as the Spirit of God deals with each of us as only he can. And then I will pray. Thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us to live in your world, to face the challenges that come in every generation. We thank you that you allow us to feel something of the cost of blessing. And in an age that has a sense of overwhelming entitlement, we pray that you'll help us to be realistic as we're confronted again this morning with yet another incident from your grace at work among your people in another day. Help us not to complain about the difficulties we face, the confusion that so often intrudes on our plans. And help us quietly to remember all that you have taught us from your word. And then to get up and go forward in faith, no matter how difficult the opposition may be. From others or within ourselves through our own feeling of weakness and inability. We ask it, Father, in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.